You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual You put the seat up to take a piss because you're a conscientious guy and you start pissing and then the seat begins to fall and it's going to pass through the stream, but there's nothing you can do about it now. It's too late to sit. It's far too late to start practicing your kegels and reaching out to grab the seat could mean a catastrophic loss of directional control. And at that moment when the seat is falling, you feel this particular kind of fatalistic, nearly existential despair. It seems like something the Germans would have a word for. And it's how I feel whenever I turn on the news these days or open Twitter, which I'm ashamed to say is pretty much how I get my news these days, which is probably contributing to my feelings of despair since Twitter brings out the worst in everyone. And man, this weekend, every time I glanced at my phone, there was news of another mass shooting, four dead, six wounded in Fresno, California, Three dead, three wounded in Santa Clarita, California. Three dead at a Walmart in Duncan, Oklahoma. And I'm ashamed to say I shrugged. That's how we live. The constant threat, the constant reality of gun violence. Nothing we can do about it. And then on my way to work this morning, this. House investigating whether Trump lied to Mueller. And I'm ashamed to say I had a much stronger reaction. My head kind of exploded on the number 10 bus, actually, because of course Trump lied to Robert Mueller. He lies to everyone about everything. It would be a miracle. It would be a sign that the president was unwell, that he might be having a stroke, that he should be rushed again to Walter Reed if he hadn't lied to Robert Mueller. Fuck brain function or a heartbeat. We won't be able to declare Donald Trump legally dead until he stops lying, until his lips stop moving and his thumbs stop twitching. But the toilet seat falling through the stream despair of it all, of course, is that Mueller knew Trump was lying to him and lying under oath about treason, not blowjobs, and could have done something about it and either didn't care enough to do something about it, do something like indict a sitting president, which Mueller had the power to do, or Mueller hoped someone or something else, perhaps some branch of government co-equal to the executive, would care enough to do something about it. But nope. There was good news this weekend. News that didn't induce that toilet seat falling through the stream brand of despair that I'm suffering from a lot lately. The Democrat won the governor's race in blood-red Louisiana after Trump campaigned there and explicitly made the election in Louisiana a referendum on him and on impeachment. This is after Dems won the governor's race in Kentucky and took full control of Virginia state legislature. Oh, and a new poll out today found that 70% of Americans think Trump's actions in Ukraine were wrong. Trump's attempt to extort the president of Ukraine for personal political benefit. And 51% of Americans currently want him removed from office. And apparently there's some baby Yoda you can watch on TV right now. That's cute. So the news isn't all toilet seat through the stream bad, but... Good news doesn't just happen. We make it happen. And I want to thank everyone who worked hard to make some good news happen for us in Louisiana this weekend and everyone working hard to make some good news happen for us, for the country, for the world at the impeachment hearings in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Adam Schiff. And of course, thank you to everyone out there working hard to make good news happen for all of us next November.
All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long and no ads, Emma Gray from HuffPo joins us to talk about gender reveal parties. Hi, Dan. I am a 27-year-old bisexual, pansexual, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out, woman. I live in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm calling because I recently um, have tried to start seeing a woman. I've been in a three-year monogamous relationship with a man. He's really wonderful. We have an awesome relationship. However, I haven't been able to, in my past, really explore my sexuality and that's something that I am feeling really empowered to do right now, and he is super supportive of that. I frequent a coffee shop, and I have become interested in one of the baristas there. We get along really well. We have great conversation. Recently, a few weeks ago, I told her that I had a crush on her, and she was pretty receptive, was like, oh, I thought you were just straight. And in the relationship, I was like, I am in a relationship, but it's, you know, complicated and asked her, you know, to hang out. She texted me maybe like two weeks ago saying she'd like to take me out on a date. Maybe it was like to go grab a glass of wine. So that feels like a date to me. I have never been with a woman before. I'm feeling very nervous and second guessing myself. And I also am in a relationship. And so I don't know how... She's going to react to everything. Um, we haven't really talked in depth about it, but i like wondering, when should I try to hang out with her again? Or what do you think I should do? So a few weeks ago, you told this woman, this hot barista, that you had a crush on her. Two weeks ago, she texted you saying she'd like to take you out for a glass of wine. And indeed, that does also, to me, sound like she asked you out on kind of a date. And you're wondering what you should do. You should go get that fucking glass of wine with the hot barista already. Do you know how many people confess crushes on poor, beleaguered baristas every day who do not welcome that kind of attention, who are aggravated that their kind of personable, friendly, tip-me barista routine was misinterpreted as sexual interest or availability? But in your case... You bet correctly in your case. You read this barista correctly, and she is indeed interested in you. And the fact that you've never been with a woman before is something that you can tell her over that fucking glass of wine. And the fact that you're in a relationship, she already knows when you confessed the crush that you have for her to her. She said, oh, I thought you were in a relationship. And you said, yes, I am. And it's complicated. So obviously, this isn't an impediment for her, the fact that you're in a relationship. She knows. She confirmed that you're in a relationship. You two discussed that three fucking weeks ago. A week later, she asked you out. And two weeks after she asked you out, you're wringing your hands and calling me and asking me what you should do. You should call her. Text her back. Say, yes, let's go grab that glass of wine. And then be your authentic, inexperienced with girl-on-girl sex self. It's relevant. You asked her out. You told her that you had a crush on her. She called and or texted and asked you out on what is inarguably a date. 
So your sexual experience level with women, your sexual availability, your interest in her, these aren't side issues. These are things you can legitimately bring up and discuss on this date with the hot barista that you could be on right now if you weren't sitting at home on the phone calling me. Don't call me. Don't call any other sex and relationship advice programs. Call the barista. Go get that glass of wine. The only way to get some experience is to risk having one. And here is someone who is clearly signaling to you that they are interested in perhaps potentially having a same-sex experience with you. Go get that glass of wine already and then call us back and let us know how it went. Hi, Dan. I'm a grown-ass woman living somewhere in North America and I'm having a concern about a friend that I am hoping you can help me with. My friend and her husband are both in their second marriages and they have a blended family. And she initiated a 24-7 dom-sub relationship with him. A little bit of background is that their kids range in age as young as elementary school. And her current husband served time during his prior marriage on domestic violence charges. Now, supposedly, his aggressive, violent tendencies are being channeled appropriately in this 24-7 dom-sub relationship. However, I recently heard that the kids are increasingly scared of him because he has been violent toward their pets. My friend has also talked about uh, wanting to share with the kids about BDSM and dominant and submissive relationships. And these are uh, also the elementary school kids that she's considering having these conversations with. Uh, the kids do have some information, incomplete information. So they know that language like master and servant is used and they know that she wears a collar and uh, it's not clear to me how much other specific information the kids have, um, but those behaviors are very normalized in their house. So I'm concerned. I'm concerned about my friend and the fact that her husband is increasingly aggressive in ways that are outside of their 24-7 agreement. And I'm concerned about the kids and I'm concerned that this violence is going to escalate in some way. And I don't know how to talk to my friend about it. I am kink positive, um, and I don't have any concerns about people being in 24-7 relationships in general. But I do have some concerns when they live with kids, and they are dominant and submissive around their kids. So I'm not sure what to do, and I'm hoping that you can give me some guidance about how to help these kids and how to help my friend. My general feeling is that kids can know their parents are kinky. It's not going to kill kids to know their parents are kinky any more than it's going to kill kids to know their parents are vanilla and having tons of vanilla sex, but kids don't need to know it and probably don't really want to know it. Don't want to know the specifics of their parents' sexual activities and involving, you know, extended family or immediate family in your kinks, having a 24 seven DS relationship that is very pronounced 
where master and servant are the terms of art thrown around, where someone is 24-7 submissive and 24-7 wearing a collar, where the submissiveness is, you know, exaggerated in that way. It can be in a DS relationship, really is to involve kids without their consent in a relationship, an adult relationship, a power exchange relationship, that they really won't understand and may be concerned or panicked by. So I am not comfortable with what your friend is doing, but I recognize that there's not a lot I can do about it. And I don't think that there's much besides expressing your concern and discomfort that you can do about it. Now, you say your friend initiated this 24-7 DS relationship with her new partner. And so this wasn't imposed on her. Perhaps it was her idea. And this guy who served time for domestic violence charges really sparked to it. My concern, and I think where you should press your friend, is the fact that her kids are scared because their stepfather or this person that they live with now who is in this parental role is hurting their animals. And that is a terrible sign. Someone who is hurting animals is usually also hurting adults. Someone who terrorizes kids by inflicting pain on their pets. It doesn't take that person long typically to pivot to inflicting pain on those children or abusing those children. So that is the biggest and, and reddest of red flags, just, you know, take the sensational parts out of this story. Take the slave collar out of the story. Take the 24-7 DS relationship out of this story. Take the wanting to have conversations, inappropriate conversations. I really think non-age appropriate conversations with elementary school-age children about DS relationships or BDSM out of this scenario. And just that fact that this person has a history of domestic violence went to prison for domestic violence and is torturing animals in this home, in this blended family, torturing her, your friends, children's pets, harming them, hurting them is a sign that your friend needs to pack up her shit and go. That is a May day's parade full of red flags. And your friend needs to get out of this relationship. She needs to act in the best interests of her children and protect them from this man who is clearly signaling that domestic violence and hurting other people non-consensually is not behind him, if it ever was. And so what you can do as the friend is encourage your friend to get out of this relationship, to take her kids and her collar and go. And if she doesn't, well, there's the CPS option. There's the reporting them option. The odds that all of these kids will wind up in foster care, in part due to the prejudice that people have about kink relationships and BDSM relationships, really high. And that itself can cause trauma. So you really need to think that one through before you make that call. But if you believe that this man is capable of or already has or imminently will move from harming these animals, torturing these animals, harming these pets – to harming these kids, you may have to make that call. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old single female. I have nothing against polyamory. I have nothing against open relationships. I think that people who have the strength and skill for it are admirable. But I think that I am 
an absolutely monogamous person and I'm seeking a long-term monogamous relationship where there is a long-lasting sex. And I want to know, based on your show, whether you think that's an unrealistic expectation to have for someone today. I know that people can have long-term, committed, monogamous relationships where there is lasting and really good and exciting sex, but I don't know that based on my show because people don't call me whether they're monogamous or non-monogamous because everything's great and it's working. They call me when it's not so great and it's not working. So monogamous or not monogamous, I hear from people usually when they're having problems with sex, often with the intensity or frequency or, or passion of sex. Now, I think the thing you have to be consciously aware of if you're in a committed long-term monogamous relationship is that boredom is a thing and that boredom can extinguish desire and taking each other for granted can extinguish desire. And I think boredom is a greater risk in a committed long-term monogamous relationship than it is in a committed long-term loving non-monogamous relationship. I mean, obviously, in the same way that STIs are a bigger risk in an open relationship, boredom is a bigger risk for two people in a closed relationship. We've talked about this a bit on the show, particularly after reading uh, Wednesday Martin's book on true and having uh, Wednesday Martin, Dr. Wednesday Martin on the show to talk about her terrific book on true boredom is a huge problem, particularly for women in committed monogamous relationships. You know, we used to think that it was men who got bored, men who strayed and women who, you know, monogamy came more easily to, and, you know, women were the protectors of sort of the monogamous ideal and men were the wastrels and the wanderers and, the cads. And we now know that this is almost entirely backwards, that a, a woman's desire for her male partner in a committed monogamous relationship drops off more quickly than a man's desire for his female partner in a committed monogamous relationship. And it's just about boredom. And you need to control for that. So you need to, if you're in a committed long-term monogamous relationship and that's what you want, but you also want the sex to stay interesting and hot and you want that sexual connection to stay strong, you need to work at it. You need to do things to shake it up. As I like to say, at the beginning of the relationship, you were the adventure that your brand new partner was on and they were the adventure that you were on. Well, now that you're in a long-term relationship, they're not an adventure for you anymore. They're a known known. You know what they're about. They know what you're about. You're not an adventure for them anymore either. And if you want the sex to be as exciting as it was at the beginning, rather than just being able to rely on them being your adventure and you being their adventure, you have to consciously choose to go on adventures together as a pair, as a unit. That doesn't mean you have to fuck other people. That doesn't mean you have to go to sex clubs. It doesn't mean you have to swing. It doesn't mean you have to have unicorns or thirds. It does mean you need to shake up your routine and you need to challenge each other and continue to grow sexually and welcome your partner's sexual growth in the context of that committed monogamous relationship or that committed non-monogamous relationship. And I think if you do that, that's really the key, monogamous or not monogamous, is to encourage, welcome your partner's sexual growth and demand from them that they encourage and welcome your sexual growth as well, that you continue to explore, you continue to play. And also in a long-term committed relationship, monogamous or not monogamous, frequency is going to decline over time. And sometimes I think people attach too much importance to frequency. 
Maybe it's quality over quantity that we need to emphasize that when you do have sex, you know, that sex at the beginning of the relationship, you can't not be fucking constantly. It seems at the beginning of the relationship later in the relationship, you're not going to fuck like you did when you met 10 years ago. So maybe later in the relationship, when you do fuck block out the time. So it's really quality fucking. Remember a lot of the fucking you did early in the relationship was probably not quality. Because you were still learning how each other's bodies worked, how you fit together, what they liked, what you liked. You were still very slowly revealing your turn-ons or your kinks to them, and they were slowly revealing theirs to you. Well, now that you know everything about each other because you're 10 years into this committed monogamous relationship, you know exactly what to do, exactly what they like, and you're open to new interests, new things they want to do, new things they might like or want to try – so that when you do have sex, you can really pull out the stops. Doesn't mean you have to pull out the stops every time. Quickie sex can also be good in the context of a committed long-term monogamous relationship. But there should be times when you block out that whole night where you really just go at it, where it's really about the quality. And I think if you do that, you can have a committed, long-term, strictly monogamous relationship, and it can be super hot. I'm sure there are people out there listening right now who are in those sorts of relationships, who've been with somebody for 10 or 15 or even 20, 30 years, monogamous, successfully monogamous that entire time. And the sex was at the start and is still really good and hot, even if it's perhaps not as frequent as it was at the start, because it never is as frequent as it was at the start. And of course, those people, welcome to give us a call, 206-302-2064. Let us know their tips, what they did to keep it hot over the long term and we'll share some of those calls with our listeners. Hi, Dan. 28-year-old lesbian living in the Northwest. And I just got out of a long-term serious relationship after finding out that they weren't keeping their promises and they were sneaking around. And I'm at the point where, you know, I was willing to round them a 0.75 up to my one. Coming out of it, I don't feel as if I missed red flags and in talking with the people around me, they don't feel like I missed red flags either. It can be hard to see those red flags when the person's kind of hiding everything so much. I guess my question is, how do I move on from this? I want to settle down. I want to find that person that I round up to my one. But after being treated like this, I just, how do you forgive everyone for the mistakes of one person, if that makes sense? How do I learn to trust someone? Um, and how do I open myself up to that? Obviously, I'm going to take time to grieve the loss of this relationship and the friendship in it and, you know, be healthy. And I don't think I'll be dating for a while. But, uh, you know, as one gets when they're in the throes of a breakup, I'm going through the no one will ever love me phase right now and hoping for some stage advice from you. I'm afraid I don't have a good or satisfying answer for this question. It's a question that comes up a lot. I was in a relationship. I got cheated on. My ex was sneaking around. They violated my trust. I feel really betrayed. How can I ever trust again? You know, I loved this person. I thought they loved me. There were no red flags. I didn't see any red flags. And so I was obviously wrong. How do I trust my judgment? How do I trust my own judgment before I invest my trust in a new partner? And the unsatisfying answer is it's a leap of faith. You can't really know if you can trust someone until they prove to you over time, over decades of time, that 
you were right to trust them and that you, you could trust them. And so the proof that this new person who's come along is someone that you can trust is only going to come after you've decided to take that leap of faith and trust them anyway. Trust them even though the last time you trusted somebody, you got your heart stomped on. I wanted to pick up on something you said toward the end of your call, that, that, that right now you're not going to be dating for a while and you fear that no one will ever love you. People sometimes cheat on people that they love. I don't know the circumstances of your breakup. If this was uh, serial infidelities, if this person was playing you for a fool, if this person was sleeping with your friends behind your back and, and mocking you, those are the sorts of sexual betrayals. That's the kind of cheating that can't be forgiven and really a relationship can't survive. But you may wind up again with someone that you feel like you can trust, that you invest your trust in, that you believe to be worthy of your trust. And you may be with that person for a while. You may be with that person for years and they may, even though they love you, violate your trust and then have to earn your trust again. And the world is full of couples who prove that that is possible, where there has been an infidelity, there has been an affair, and the couple is still together and they're in a good place. We heard recently, we got a call recently from a woman who was married for a very long time and her husband cheated. And in the wake of the affair and all of the truth telling and just late dark night of the soul screaming and yelling that, that occurred in the wake of the affair, it actually improved their relationship, brought them closer together. They were more honest and connected now after the affair than they were before the affair. And the sex was even better after the affair. So it is possible. And we've had examples on the show of people whose trust has been violated and the relationship not only survived, but thrived in the wake of that violation. And the person, you know, who violated their partner's trust had to make amends, had to apologize, had to earn their partner's trust anew. So I just want to warn you against going into your future relationships with that belief that if somebody ever cheats on you or even thinks about cheating on you, that that means that you weren't loved by that person. It is possible to love someone and betray them in this way. It is possible to love someone and cheat on them. It is not always possible for a relationship to survive that kind of betrayal, to survive an infidelity, to survive cheating. But it is possible. It is even common for relationships to survive, but they're likelier to survive an infidelity, a one-off, not serial infidelity, not cheating piece of shit kind of infidelity, but the relationship is likelier to survive that mistake. If the people in that relationship don't believe that one mistake, that an affair, that an infidelity is proof that your partner didn't or couldn't or never did love you. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. 26-year-old bisexual guy from Western Canada here, and I have somewhat of a basic question I was hoping you could help me with. I'm in university, and there's a girl in one of my classes I have a major crush on, like thinking about her all the time sort of infatuation. I don't consider myself overly adept at reading flirtatious signals, but I feel like she definitely flirts a lot with me. She's also just a really friendly person and has a ton of friends, so I keep second-guessing myself and thinking that's just her personality type. I already know that the way to proceed here is to ask her out, invite the no, don't be creepy, see what happens. Unfortunately, I feel like my theoretical knowledge of how to handle these situations far outweighs my skill in actually handling them. I'm 26 and I've never been in a relationship, serious or otherwise. 
There were a couple flings I had in high school, but otherwise I have zero experience. I also don't have any friends. Well, one, I guess. My best friend from grade school and I still talk relatively often and make plans to see each other when possible, but we live thousands of kilometers apart. I'm alone in my town. I feel like I'm starting to get to the age where having no friends and no relationship experience is kind of a red flag, which is giving me anxiety about making friends or asking people out, and I'm in a bit of a spiral. This girl I have a crush on is one of the few people I've started chatting with at the beginning of some of my classes in an attempt to make friends. The issue I'm running into now is that I'm terrified of asking her out, or even of asking if the people I've been talking to want to hang out in a friendly sort of way sometime, because I'm scared that I'll lose even these small interactions and have to start over again from scratch. So how do I ask this girl out, Dan? How do I get over my fear of losing what little I already have in the hopes of gaining something greater? And when or how should I ask her out? I remember a question from an earlier show about a guy wanting to ask some of the women in his yoga class out and you advised against doing it at the yoga class. Is university class the same off-limits type of place? I feel like I just get caught up in this cycle not wanting to be a creepy asshole, which stops me from ever attempting conversation in the first place. My therapist has told me that if I'm the type of person who worries about coming across as creepy, I'm probably not coming across as creepy. I just can't get out of my head about it. My gut tells me one thing, then I second guess my gut, and then I second guess my second guess, and I just stall and stall and never make any progress. Any advice for me, Dan? There are a lot of lonely people out there. There's been research. They're calling it the loneliness epidemic. Fully half of all Americans feel like they are alone all of the time or much of the time and don't have close interpersonal relationships, don't have close friends or intimates that they can count on. And, you know, the only corrective for this, you know, if people are alone, they need to reach out. And I think a big contributing factor to the loneliness epidemic is the fear of rejection epidemic. You are a good example. There is something that you would like to have in your life, more friends, perhaps a girlfriend, but you're so paralyzed by the idea that you would risk the connection that you have with this girl. You know, you have a pleasant interactions with this girl. You have a rapport with this girl from your class. Asking her out on a date could imperil that. You know, if you've misread her signals, if you were feeling sort of open and, and a little flirtatious during these conversations and you misread her, if you engage in a little dickful thinking and misread her signals, well, then that'll get awkward. That relationship will get awkward. It may end the relationship. It may end the connection. But if you don't risk ending that connection or you don't risk a period of awkwardness that the relationship that you do have with this girl could potentially survive, there's no relationship. There's no upgrading the relationship. There's no chance that you could wind up dating this girl, wind up in a romantic relationship with this girl if you aren't willing, as you said, to risk anything to risk what you do have, you will never get anywhere else. You will never gain what you could have. So you're just going to have to over up and take the risk and take my advice, invite the rejection and, and acknowledge the awkwardness. So, you know, if the answer is no, this is going to, you know, it's going to be awkward the next time we see each other. I'm not an asshole, so we can just like power through the awkwardness and I hope that we can just return to the friendship that we already had if the answer is no, but I was hoping maybe you want to go on a date with me sometime. You can say all of this to her. And if you invite someone not only to reject you, if you invite the no, as I always encourage people to do, but you acknowledge that if there is a no, it's going to be awkward for a bit, that this is going to 
queer your relationship, for lack of a better expression. It's going to queer your relationship for a little bit. But if you both are grown-ups about it and you demonstrate that you can handle rejection, the rejection, the no that you invited, you can get through that stage and you can return to the friendly rapport that you had established before. And then there's going to be a person out there on your college campus who knows that you're a good and decent guy who can take no for an answer, the kind of guy that she might vouch for to other women who might be interested in you, who might express that interest to her. She will know that you're a good and decent guy because you didn't flip the fuck out when she said no to you. If she says no to you, she might say yes, which is why you should ask her out. Now, when I advise the guy not to hit on the women or not to ask someone out from his yoga class at the yoga class, that was because at a yoga class, people are half-dressed, they're covered in sweat, they're doing exercises together, maybe they're in a sort of like changing area or coming out of or going into a changing area, and someone may feel cornered or vulnerable in that moment, and it demonstrates a kind of inconsideration that could be disqualifying. And so I advise the guy who is interested in that woman from his yoga class to find another opportunity to see if they run into somebody, if he runs into one of these women from his yoga class somewhere else to say, hey, we're in that yoga class together and have a conversation, initiate a conversation at another time in another place when that person is free to go and also not nearly in their underpants. You're in a class with this woman. I wouldn't ask her out right before class if the answer is no and it feels incredibly awkward and you have to be in a room together for the next hour or two. That could suck. That could make an awkward situation worse. But you've left class. You're walking down the hall. You're walking across campus together. Or if you regularly see her or run into her in other places on campus when you aren't in class together, to take that opportunity and say, hey, I would love to hang out sometime. I would love to go on a date. And invite the no. If the answer is no, just tell me no because I can hear no and I'm not a baby and I can take rejection and I promise it'll be awkward for a a little bit the next time we see each other. But but I'll be a grown-up and and continue to be friendly and we can power through the awkwardness and get past it if the answer is no. But again, the answer could be yes. You should also invite all of these people from your class that you've had these pleasant interactions with out to pizza to hang out sometime, to have a study session sometime. Take the risk. You know, there's so many lonely people out there in the world right now. The the loneliness epidemic among millennials is particularly acute. Whatever the generation is that's coming up after the millennials, Generation Z, really acute. And the solution to that loneliness epidemic is people making connections, people reaching out. But somebody who feels lonely needs to go first and ask other people who also might be feeling lonely and isolated themselves if they want to date if they want to hang out, if they want to get together, if they want to have a study session. But you could be the guy. You could be the guy who not only solves your little chunk of the loneliness epidemic, but the little chunk being experienced by other lonely people who might be in that class, who might be in your social circle that you might have already established contact with. Just do it, like the shoe people say. Hi, Dan. I'm a queer woman in my late 20s in an awesome three-year relationship with a queer trans woman my age. And we have a question about calibrating expectations and feelings in poly relationships. Our relationship has been open for about a year and a half. I've had a consistent play partner who lives out of state. I see him a couple of times a year for jam-packed weekends of kinky fun, but otherwise we keep things platonic. My partner has been seeking out her own platonic and casual hookups. We recently decided to engage together with another couple. 
when they approached us, they seemed great. They were also queer and kinky, and they said they loved the idea of dating a couple, but understood if Clay was all that we wanted at this time. We met up and hit it off and told them we would be open to more than just play. We wanted to date them, too. We had a few weeks of really great sex and awesome conversation, but it quickly started to feel like we wanted more time than they had to give. Last week, they told us they were each going on a date and wanted to know how we felt about that. We were honest and said we were a little jealous since it felt like our own desire for their time wasn't being satisfied. After a long, emotional conversation, mostly over text, they told us that they wanted something a little more casual than what we were asking of them. They said they were not, in fact, interested in dating a couple and claimed that was never what they wanted. They just used that, quote, vanilla language at first so they don't freak people out. While that did hurt, my partner and I talked and we decided we did want to keep seeing them, but with adjusted expectations and an emotional commitment that was more in line with theirs. When we tried to tell them this, they broke it off. They seem to think it's not possible for someone to recalibrate what they want, and by continuing to see them, we would be denying ourselves and our emotions. No matter what we said, they insisted that we wanted more and that this difference could not be overcome. They offered to stop all play and just be friends. We declined because while we think we can turn this into something more casual, we can't be friends without wanting that great physical connection back. So our question is this. Are we naive for thinking we can adjust our expectations and divest some of our emotional energy? Is there something about discovering differences like this that can never be rectified in poly relationships? Or are they being inflexible and untrusting? And do you have any advice for avoiding this in our future poly adventures? You got dumped. I'm, I'm sorry. That's all that really happened here. You know, an individual dates an individual. They hit it off. They have three great weeks together. They have lots of great conversations. And then one decides for whatever reason that they don't feel as strongly about the other as the other does about them. And then they, you know, say weaselly things because they want out of the relationship, but they don't want to hurt that person's feelings. So, you know, oftentimes when it's one person dating just one other person, the person who wants to do the dumping will say things that are transparently untrue. You know, it's not you, it's me, it's the wrong time. I'm really busy with school or work at the moment and I don't have time for a relationship. And they will back out of the relationship in a way that can be, if the person being dumped can't see through the white lies and doesn't see them for what they actually are, which is a kind of, you know, misplaced kindness. Someone's just being indirect instead of just being blunt about their feelings. They don't want to hurt you. They want to spare you pain, but they're actually causing you more pain because it's confusing. Yeah, that sucks. It just sucks. I'm sorry. I'm kind of lost now. It just fucking sucks. You got dumped. That's all that happened here. Setting aside the poly thing, setting aside the kink thing, setting aside the two couples dating each other, the four people in a briefly in a relationship thing, you got dumped. It's not about adjusting your expectations when it comes to polyamorous relationships, you're adjusting your emotional expectations. It's just a, a risk of dating anybody as a single person or dating as a couple, dating a unicorn as a couple or two couples dating each other. It might not work out. And it didn't. And I don't think you should waste any more time or emotional energy overthinking this or, or scrutinizing your own actions or your own behavior. You were open to dating this couple. They were open to dating you. They decided for whatever reason, they didn't want to pursue the relationship and it ended. Unfortunately, they felt they had to end the friendship 
two, that may change over time. Who knows? Maybe you guys will circle back later and reestablish uh, at least a friendship. But for now, it's over. And you just have to accept that. And not spend too much time asking yourself why or wondering what you did wrong. It just didn't work out. That's it. You got dumped. It sucks. I'm sorry. Hey, Dan and company, uh, 30-something, just straight gal. I am having an issue that I'm not quite sure how to handle. I'm developing really strong feelings for my friend who I work with and I also play music with. And it's just getting out of control to the point where I just am really wrapped up about it. And I don't know how to proceed or if there's anything that can be done. He's married and I'm very certain that there's no possibility of them becoming an open relationship. So yeah, I don't know if I need to say anything or if I just need to cut him out of my life or what you and your company and crew would recommend. If you cut him out of your life, he'll wonder what he did wrong, what he did to offend you. If you tell him that you have a crush on him and he feels the same way, you may tempt him to do something to initiate or propose something that screws up his marriage, blows up his marriage. And then, you know, if it doesn't work out between you two and most relationships don't work out long-term, something beautiful, something lasting, something good and decent was destroyed. You didn't get anything out of it. Yeah. It's a real tough position to be in. You know, if you disappear on him, if you stop making music with him, He's going to torture himself, wondering what he did to offend you. But if you're just honest with him, if you say something to him, well, there's the risk of bad feeling and bad outcome there too. There's also a chance that they might have an open relationship. They might have a DADT arrangement that allows for him to be intimate with others. You can't know that for certain until you ask. And most people who are in opposite sex relationships who are open or have DADT arrangements with their partners, that's not something they broadcast to their social circles or their friends, except for their very closest friends or indeed for the people that they're sleeping with. So you can't rule out all possibility that there's some sort of relationship, even sexual relationship that you could have with this guy, but you'd have to take a big risk to establish whether or not that was possible. And it may not be a risk that you're, comfortable taking. And when you confess a crush to someone and they don't reciprocate your feelings, they don't feel the same way about you. Or even if they do, that can threaten the friendship that can threaten the relationship that you do have with them. Because if knowing that you're crushed out on them makes them feel awkward or uncomfortable in your presence, they're not going to want to be in your presence. And if knowing you're crushed out on them and they feel the same way about you, that can be a torment, being with you, being around you, knowing what's possible if they betrayed their spouse or left their spouse, that can make them not want to be around you either. So there's a lot at stake here. There's a lot you're risking. The good thing about crushes, though, is that they sometimes pass like a fever, you can take a break from this friendship. You can tell him that, you know, for the next two or three months, you're just so busy with X, whatever X might be, make X up, that you can't hang out right now. You can't make music right now. And then circle back in three months. Get back together to make a little bit of music together in three months' time and see if you feel the same way or the feelings are as intense. 
There's a chance they might not be. There's also a chance that in the intervening three months, you might meet someone else or develop a crush on someone else, on a more realistic prospect, on someone who's not married or is free to be sexual with you or to date you, even if they are married, which your friend, at least so far as you know now, is not. And if you met somebody else in those three months that you took a break from this relationship, didn't terminate the relationship, didn't cut him out of your life, but just made yourself less available. If you met somebody else, your feelings for that other person could crowd out your feelings for this guy. Luck. A couple of weeks on the podcast, I took a question from a woman who is worried about the gender reveal party that her MAGA bro wanted to have now that his wife was pregnant. And she worried that gender reveal parties, in addition to being ridiculous, were dangerous. And to me, that felt like a bit of an overstatement. Yeah, the worrying for the small percentage of kids out there who grow up to be some stripe of gender nonconforming, but they're not exactly dangerous. Well, since recording that response, since broadcasting that question, we've had a gender reveal pipe bomb, a gender reveal party death, and a gender reveal party plane crash. So, kind of dangerous. Emma Gray, senior reporter at HuffPo and author of A Girl's Guide to Joining the Resistance, wrote When Gender Reveals Kill, a long piece at HuffPo on the surprisingly short history of the gender reveal party. And she joins me by phone to walk me through the dangers, the dangers of the gender reveal party. Hey, Emma, thank you for jumping on the phone today. Oh, so, so happy to be on and be talking about this uh, absurd ritual. <laughs> so I was very surprised to learn reading your really terrific and informative piece that gender reveal parties are only 10 years old. And you recount in the piece the very first gender reveal party. Can you tell us about it? How did this get going? Yeah, I mean, it sort of became popularized by accident, which is, I think, probably how a lot of rituals begin. And then they just move incredibly, incredibly quickly in the age of social media. Um, but this blogger, Jenna Carbonitas, she was pregnant with her first child. And in 2008, she told me she had recently made this very DIY duck cake for a colleague's baby shower at work. And she just found it to be a lot of fun. And she wanted an excuse to make it again. And at the same time, she was pregnant with her first child. And her sister-in-law had re uh, recently given birth. So she was just feeling like, no one's really excited about my baby. And so her anatomy scan was coming up and she decided, hey, I, I want people to be excited about my pregnancy. I want to bring the energy up in the family. And I really want to make this duck cake. So why not tie it to this anatomy scan and just like turn it to a bit of an event? I mean, it was really not something that she put a ton of thought into. Uh, and she had people over on a Tuesday, made two cakes, had her sister-in-law bring out the correct one. They cut into it. And there was just a little bit of pink icing, you know, between the layers of the cake, like not even a lot of overt decor that really focused in on gender the way that we see now. Mm -hmm. uh, and she posted about it on her blog and ended up being picked up by the Bump magazine. And that magazine ran a two-page spread and ended up in OBGYN offices across the country. And I think it sort of snowballed from there. And that very first gender reveal, reveal it was a surprise also to the, to, to the woman who made the duck cakes. She made two cakes, one with a little bit of blue icing inside, one with a little bit of pink icing inside, and she didn't know which one was going to be brought out. So the reveal was to her. Right. It was a reveal for everyone, which is, I think, uh, still the case in, in most cases. You know, you have the doctor put the... Uh, the 
assigned sex into an envelope and then maybe give it to a baker or I don't know. I think people have a whole whole range of, of ways of kind of getting around knowing that information when they're prepping. It's interesting you just said assigned sex because, you know, we, we call them gender reveal parties, GRPs, that's what they're called, even though what's being revealed is just sex, male or female sex organs, uh, but not gender because gender isn't necessarily in all cases tied to or determined by sex. But, but what I'm curious about is, is how did we move so quickly from in, in 10 years from a duck cake to pipe bombs and plane crashes and wildfires and our very first gender reveal fatality, which is, you know, a woman is dead. She went to a gender reveal party. They accidentally, in you know, an effort to make a, a blue smoke bomb or a pink smoke bomb made a pipe bomb and it exploded and the shrapnel killed this woman. It's not particularly fucking funny, but it's hard not to smirk about it somehow but how did we get from that innocent duck cake you know there's this bid for attention hey i'm having a baby too to pipe bombs and deaths and wildfires and plane crashes in a decade right and you know that's what i really wanted to dig into because as you said obviously this recent news these injuries and the fatality are are not funny it's incredibly dark and a real tragedy for the families that are impacted. And I just kind of wanted to dig into, as you said, how did we get here and how did it move so quickly? And I think the answer is that it's sort of this perfect storm of social media. You know, we YouTube was was really big when the first gender reveal party kind of took off. And so that's mostly where people were showing them. And then you have the rise of Instagram over the last decade, which is a medium that is really, really tailored to uh, aesthetically pleasing visuals that will elicit a reaction and get like from a big audience. So, and then you have, as as you also kind of touched on a little bit, this changing i mainstream ideas about what gender is and this greater understanding that assigned sex at birth does not always correspond to gender identity, that we have trans communities, we have intersex communities, we have non-binary communities. And I think mm-hmm. often when there is a big wave of, of social change, you often see a bit of a cultural backlash, a desire to kind of hold on to the notion, in this case, of gender as a really distinct binary. You have Instagram and YouTube, you have this gender anxiety and then you have capitalism kind of swooping <laughs> in to create this whole cottage industry in which people are sort of capitalizing on the fact that parent, expecting parents now feel this responsibility or desire to celebrate in a way that will elicit, you know, likes and affirmation in the way that our culture has sort of organized itself right now. And I think most of us probably. And, and yeah, exactly. Shit. It's another ka-ching Exactly. Moment sell them the... a lot of shit. It is really astounding. If you if you search Etsy, it is wow, a real eye opening experience. But I, I think I know the answer to this. But I, but I want to, <laughs> to hear what you think. So many explosive devices, a pink or blue cake, some balloons. I can understand. But some of the businesses that are out there capitalizing literally on this trend are selling exploding hockey pucks, exploding basketballs, and when they explode, they give off blue or pink shrapnel. Shooting range targets that explode and pink or blue dust or, or smoke when shot? What the fuck? Where is this intersection with explosions? Is that just to interest the, you know, obviously gender role obsessed dads in this ritual to make them feel included? What's with the explosive devices? 
that's sort of my thesis. You know, I think that, again, is this uh, intersection of this desire to masculinize these parties to an extent, you know, the traditional baby shower um, is thought of mostly surrounding women only. It's often quite like exclusionary to, to men. And often you see men who are perhaps not super uh, comfortable in, in, bending the boundaries of traditional masculinity shy away from things that are coded as feminine. So if you, you know, make it about, you can lift a giant dumbbell and then reveal your baby when you (laughs) put it down and the smoke puffs out, or you can drive your very, very large masculine car away and your baby's gender will be revealed. So I think masculinity has a lot to do with it. And then also these smoke bombs just create a really cool visual effect. So again, for Instagram, right. they, they are, are very cool effective visual effect, except when they kill your guest. Except when, yeah. Except when they become very dangerous because probably most people should stay away from anything involving gunpowder. It's just my personal opinion. Now, one of the things you said in the piece that that jumped out at me was you're describing, uh, you know, what these uh, gender assigned sex reveal parties look like on Instagram. And you say a beautiful, likely heterosexual couple stands in front of a camera with friends and family just out of sight. There are 1.1 million photos of, of, of posts with gender reveal as the hashtag on Instagram. And I'd like to think not one was of a same sex couple doing this shit. But there's got to be some in there. They can't all be heterosexual couples. I mean, there's so many examples of gays and lesbians borrowing the worst aspects of straight marriage and wedding <laughs> rituals. Just like wholesale bachelor parties being walked down the aisle, making a monogamous commitment. Surely there are same-sex couples out there, gay couples out there, who've done this. I'm sure there are. It's the same way that, you know, overwhelmingly when you scroll through, the couples tend to be white. But of course, there are couples of color. I mean, when you grow up in a heterosexist, white supremacist society, and this is the kind of dominant culture, there's always going to be a pressure to for, for everyone to kind of take on the, the things that are held up by that dominant culture. Um, but I do think it would be a mistake to separate this from an attachment to the idea of the heterosexual white couple, moneyed couple. You say at the end of the piece, and it's really a terrific piece, and anybody who even a passing interest in this phenomenon should should immediately go read it. You say the the real danger isn't dying, and the chances are obviously low. There's been way more than you know the 1.1 million parties that we have evidence for on Instagram. Um, and only one fatality that we know of. Uh, but you do, do you do describe the parties as dangerous, which is you know, what I said they weren't in in, in my <laughs> podcast. Um, the danger isn't death or plane crashes or wildfires. Typically, where do you see the danger? I think the danger is in really reifying this attachment to the gender binary and kind of digging our heels in and setting up a whole set of expectations for you know, for fetuses, essentially. And Mm. if you look at the products that are attached to these gender reveals, they include not only, you know, an attachment to the binary, but an attachment to all of these very traditional stereotypical characteristics that we have assigned to people who fit within that binary. And so it just kind of, you know, replicates that message over and over and over again. And then it's amplified across all of these social media platforms. So I do think that they are dangerous in a, in a social aspect, uh, as well as, you know, sometimes being physically dangerous. 
most kids uh, are going to be cis, a tiny percentage of the population. And I say this as a gay person, tiny percentage of the population. I want people still to be concerned about the tiny percentage of the kids out there who are gay. I definitely want people to be concerned about the tiny percentage of the kids out there who are going to be non-binary or, or trans or gender non-conforming. But, you know, in, in the overwhelming majority of cases, this like reinforcing the binary is going to not trouble the kid because the kid is going to be cis. That said, the kind of parents who would do this, who would have a gender reveal party, are really flagging themselves as the kind of parents who are obsessed with gender roles and their kids, if their kids turn out to be non-binary or, 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 or trans or gender non-conforming, are going to be at particular risk. It's almost like we should keep an eye on kids and, and the parents of those kids who have these parties because if their kids turn out to be gender non-conforming, the parents have already – out of themselves as the kind of parents who are going to abuse their trans or or non gender conforming or non binary kids. Yeah, and I think that you know even children who are cisgender are impacted negatively uh, by the binary and by the restrictions that we put around these assigned you know assigned biological sexes. Like even you have a whole subset of rifles or ruffles merchandise. You know mm-hmm. what is that saying even about oh, children gosh. who do grow up identifying as boys and girls. Do all of those boys have to take up hunting? Do all of those girls need to wear ruffles? And the blogger who accidentally popularized this, Jenna, she has an 11-year-old daughter now who does identify, you know, uses the she pronouns, um, but she, you know, cut her hair very short. She only wears suits. And Jenna was saying that she feels like these gender reveal parties really, you know, pink wash girls and into a corner and and i would argue that they do the same for for boys and kind of stifle um what those gender identities and biological sex identities mean and yeah it's probably something we should leave around <laughs> yeah I, I think I, I think you're right you've opened my eyes to the dangers <laughs> you know i'm cisgender but gay but you know the ways in which before i realized i was gay I was gender non-conforming were particularly torturous and i think if my parents had been more obsessed with gender roles than they were, the culture had encouraged them to be by popularizing this kind of bullshit that my already uh, troubled cis childhood would have been a little more troubled than it was. So I think you're right. I will concede the point. More dangerous than I realized when I talked about gender role parties a couple of weeks ago before the first <laughs> death, before the first plane crash. Emma Gray, senior reporter at HuffPo, author of A Girl's Guide to Joining the Resistance. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, Dan. So I'm a longtime Magnum subscriber, and I've listened to you address same questions over and over again from people who are having sex, but there's issues, but so they're calling you. But you never address the people that aren't having sex and want it <laughs> and want to have sex. And I do everything that you said. I've done so much Internet dating, including uh, some BDSM sites that now to keep myself entertained, sometimes I'm making out a huge spreadsheet of all the first and second dates I've had, because that's mostly what it is. I get out there all the time. I meet people all the time. I meet people at work. I get out and do music stuff and hiking and all that stuff. But it's been about four years since I've had sex. And most of my life I've been single, except for um, one or two relationships that have lasted a couple of years. I've had uh, like two relationships over the last two or three years and I'm 54. So that's not 
much. So, um, and I've even asked friends what I would should do differently, what I'd change about myself. I also did try to be a third with a couple and it was a really good experience, but it was hard because I don't want to be a third. I want to just have my relationship. So um, that's really not for me. So <laughs> could you address my question? I'm happy to address your question. Well, happy isn't quite the right word. I am perfectly willing to address your question in as compassionate a way as I possibly can. And this question uh, I address a lot, perhaps not on the podcast, but it does seem to come up a lot in the column and in the Savage Love Letter of the Day. I've written on this topic frequently. People write me because they're alone and they've been out there trying for a long time and haven't met anybody, haven't had sex for years. Some people haven't had sex or romantic partnerships ever. And the thing that I often say that a lot of other, you know, people in the advice racket don't say is that some people wind up alone and you could be one of those people and people out there who are partnered right now could wind up alone again. You know, we don't all die simultaneously with our partners by our sides and car wrecks or plane crashes. Often, we wind up alone again. And that's why it's really important, whether we're partnered or not, to build lives for ourselves that give us pleasure and and bring us joy, whether we're single or not. And the advice, you're doing everything that I would advise someone to do. As you said, you're getting out there, you're enjoying your life, you're hiking, you're going to, to music events, you're on dating apps, you're putting yourself out there, hopefully not just going to music events and going hiking in hopes of meeting someone, but you know, going to see concerts and going to climb mountains because even if you're up there with friends or you're up there alone or at the concert alone or at the concert with friends who aren't your romantic partners, you're enjoying yourself and enjoying your life. And that's really the key to find joy and to enjoy your fucking life partnered or not. As I wrote to somebody in the Savage Love Letter of the Day a little bit ago, romantic partners aren't the key to happiness. They're not even a shortcut to happiness. The true path to happiness is creating a life for yourself that makes you happy whether you're partnered or not. And to put things in perspective, I think it's important for people who are alone to know that half the mail I get is from people who feel trapped in awful relationships. And some just don't feel trapped. They literally are trapped. There's no way out for them. They're stuck in a relationship that makes them miserable. And, you know, if you're alone and you're lonely and you're pining for a relationship and you want a relationship and you feel this absence and this ache in your life, well, someone who's partnered can also feel very similar things. And it's not the absence, but the presence of the partner that's making them miserable. And it's not just take comfort in the misery of others or the presumption of the misery of others or the reality of the misery of, you know, a certain significant percentage of others who are partnered, but just know that everybody hurts and that everybody struggles and know and accept that not everybody finds somebody. And I, and I hate to say that, you know, I hate to say to people who are looking for love that they may not find it, but accepting that you may not find it can really bring a, a certain kind of peace that paradoxically may put you in a better position to find it, which I know makes peace harder to find. If it feels like it's a strategic peace you're reaching for, not a genuine lived authentic experienced peace, but 
it is often the case, this is a cliche, every cliche applies, that when you stop looking, that's when you find it. And I think that's not about the strategy of, oh, I stopped looking and now there it is. I think there's just something about a person who's completely comfortable in their own skin and completely comfortable with who they are and where they're at right now, which can include you know being completely comfortable with being single and alone right now, that that person's confidence and their comfort is attractive. My only other piece of advice is, again, to do what you've already done and asking your friends if there's anything you're doing or doing wrong that they could advise you about. And if you're, you have the sort of friends who can really level with you and you've encouraged them to really level with you, there may be nothing that you're doing wrong. There may be nothing that you can do differently. You may just be unlucky in love. So I would encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. If dating apps feel like a waste of time and they are a real time suck and they can invite a lot of rejection, you know, there's a lot of swiping left, swiping right. There's a lot of discarding of people on dating apps. And if you've been rejected a lot, the sort of constant rejection that dating apps can represent really can drag you down. If you want to get off dating apps, get off dating apps. But I would encourage you to keep living your life, to keep doing things that bring you joy, to keep climbing those mountains, to keep going to those concerts so that partnered or not, you're happy. Partnered or not, you have a rich and rewarding life. You're enjoying a rich and rewarding life. And hopefully someone will come along. You know, I know people who didn't meet their partner until they were in their late 50s, sometimes even in their 60s. It can suddenly happen. You have to sort of paradoxically be at peace with the possibility that it might not happen for you while living in hope that it will. Hi, Dan. I'm a 20-year-old straight female from the West Coast. I'm calling today because I've been seeing this guy for the past four months or so. Um, it started out really casual, just kind of like a Tinder hookup type of thing, and um, gradually just turned into, you know, staying at his place every night and feeding his kid and it got more serious and we've kind of like forged this really nice bond and connection that feels really easy and really comfortable. And he's been really supportive through some tough times in my life recently. But we were watching TV last night and there was something on that kind of addressed the last presidential election. And um, I, you know, I asked him kind of casually like, Oh, who'd you vote for? And I completely completely expected him to tell me that he voted for Clinton. But what he said was that he voted for Trump. And I, um, I have like kind of a really strong emotional reaction because I am a blaming liberal. Like I am as, as, as left as they come. And, uh, and he knows this. And so I couldn't believe that it had never really come up before I knew I knew that he was a little more middle of the road than I am, but I I would never have guessed that he was a Trump supporter, and so I kind of grilled him about it a little bit, and he uh, and I you know I was like how how can you support this person who brings so much ugliness into the world and so much unhappiness and bigotry, and he was like well you know I support his foreign policy I didn't want to go to war in Syria and um, I don't really know as much about foreign policy as I should. And I didn't really have like a good argument against that. 
but um, I was upset and I'm still upset and I'm confused and lost and I'm like totally blindsided by this because this person that I've grown really close with and I really care about is just not who I thought he was. But at the same time, like I know him and he's not racist. He's not sexist. He's not homophobic. You know, he stands up for minorities and we have the same views on abortion and, you know, religion. So if you've got any sage wisdom for me, what I should do, how I should address this. I encountered a few men all men, white men, all white men, like your boyfriend in the run-up to 2016. People who said they were not racist, said they were not sexist, said they were not homophobic, didn't seem to have racist, sexist, homophobic attitudes or policy positions, but had talked themselves into voting for Trump by spinning this elaborate neoliberal conspiracy theory about Hillary Clinton being a warmonger. And that she would definitely take us to war in Syria if she got elected and potentially take us to war with Russia if she got elected. Invariably, when I dialed down with these guys or drilled down with these guys, what seemed to be going on for them is that they just weren't comfortable voting for a woman. And they were incapable of doing a risk-benefit analysis. The risk Donald Trump posed to women Minorities, people of color, immigrants, the environment, the survival of our species on this planet, war or no war, versus the, I guess, singular benefit of risking all of that damage to minority communities and queers and immigrants and the planet versus the benefit of potentially not going to war in the Middle East where we are actually already at war and we have been dropping bombs all over Syria. We were dropping bombs in Syria when Barack Obama was president and those bombs have continued to fall with Donald Trump in the White House. So yeah, what do you do? You've been fucking a Trump supporter or fucking a Trump voter, if not a supporter. And what do you do? Well, there's some cognitive dissonance at work here. He claims he's not racist. He claims he's not sexist. He claims he's not homophobic. The administration that he bears some collective responsibility for putting into power, for sending Donald Trump to the White House with his clown car packed full of assholes like Stephen Miller and Mike Pence and Pompeo and everybody else, he put them in there and he has done harm to people of color, immigrants, queers. And how does he feel about that now? You know, we're a few years out from that vote and there were a lot of people seemingly on the left who convinced themselves that there was no difference between Hillary and Donald or Hillary was potentially going to be worse on issues they cared about than Donald. It is hard to imagine anything Hillary would have done in office that is worse than everything, every single fucking thing Donald Trump has done in office. So I think the question, if you want to keep fucking this guy, that you need to ask him is who are you voting for in 2020 now that you know who Donald Trump is, now that you know he has it in for queer people despite holding up a pride flag at a rally, now that you know he doesn't want to build a big welcoming door for immigrants who want to come in the right way in his fucking wall, but he wants to shut down all immigration into the United States, now that you know he's appointed hundreds of anti-choice assholes to lifetime appointments in the federal judiciary and put a sexual predator on the Supreme Court and 
stole Merrick Garland's seat with Mitch McConnell. Now that you know all these things, are you still planning to vote for this guy? Because if you are still planning to vote for this guy in 2020, then I'm sorry, you are racist, you are sexist, you are homophobic, and I can't keep fucking you. And I won't keep fucking you. Have that kind of a conversation with him. Maybe you can fuck him a couple of times while having that conversation with him. So you can keep fucking this guy with a clear conscience if you get to work on this guy. There are people out there who are racist, sexist, homophobic haters who supported Trump. A lot of them are evangelical Christians. There's no peeling them off Trump. There are people out there, however, who voted for Trump, who cast a racist, sexist, homophobic vote when they voted for Trump, however they rationalized it, whatever sort of bank shot lefty Hillary's a warmonger rationalization they engaged in to justify that vote, who can possibly be persuaded. And access to regular sex that you enjoy with someone you respect, with someone that you want to listen to, with someone who's upset with you for the harm that you have done to the world with your vote, that can be an incentive to reassess your vote last time and commit to voting better next time. Voting blue in 2020, blue no matter who. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old woman living on the East Coast. So um, I was in a super toxic relationship for about 12 years with a man He's the father of my child, so we tried to make it work a lot longer than we should have. We've been completely separated for almost a year. It was my choice. He's always wanted to make it work, and I finally made the decision that we weren't well together. He's actually emotionally unstable. I suspect he has borderline personality disorder, but he has been officially diagnosed bipolar. So if we're on good terms for a couple of weeks, he'll sometimes start to assume in his warped brain that I'm warming up to him again and then he'll get upset when I clarify that I'm just being friendly. I'm calling because recently somehow it came up that he really wants to have sex with me even just the one time. Our sex life was always really exceptional and I've actually never found anything to match it so I would really enjoy the experience. I told him that if it happens it would mean absolutely nothing to me. It may only be one time He would have to wear a condom and pull out and that our relationship out of the bedroom would stay completely the same. Nothing would change. I told him that I would never take him back. He said that he understood that. What I'm worried about is sending him into another depression spiral. He's a good place in his life and I don't want him to have a setback if he has these expectations in the back of his head, even though I've made it so clear not to. I've addressed this to him and he claims he'll be fine. And if anything, it would be worth it for him. Am I a bad person if I risk his mental health just for my orgasm? Or is he a big boy that can make his own choices? If your ex misinterprets friendliness, being on good terms for a couple of weeks as you co-parent your child for an interest in getting back together, how do you think he's going to interpret you fucking him? It's only been a year since you got out of this relationship. You can tell him that nothing will change. You can tell him you're never going to take him back. But, you know, you described his brain as warped. I didn't. He has a a mental illness that can really exacerbate dickful thinking. If it's borderline personality disorder, if it's bipolar disorder, that can really exacerbate. Those are mental conditions. Those are mental health challenges that can really exacerbate 
dickful, twatful thinking. You can tell him that you fucking him means nothing. The odds that he will attach meaning to you fucking him are a thousand percent. Right now, just a year out of this relationship, he attaches meaning just to a cooperative, friendly relationship, you know, getting along for the sake of your child. He interprets that as an interest in getting back together. If you start fucking him again, he will definitely read that as interest in getting back together. And maybe if you just keep fucking, maybe you'll come around and want to be with him again. Don't fuck him. There are other men out there on the planet. There are billions of other men out there on the planet. You had great sex with this guy. That doesn't mean you can only have great sex with this particular guy. There are other guys out there that you can have great sex with, exceptional sex with, but you're going to have to go find them. And the odds of finding them in 12 months, the odds of finding them when you're, you know, a busy halftime parent or perhaps full-time parent, I don't know if you have full custody or not, you know, are a little bit longer, but it'll be worth the effort. The chaos and drama that fucking this guy will bring into your life if he self-servingly or because of his mental illness interprets that as interest and he should just keep pressing and pushing won't be worth the sucks. I guarantee you it will not be worth it. Do not do it. Go fuck somebody else. Go fuck a series of somebody else's until you find a guy that you click with in the same sort of way that you clicked with your ex who needs to stay your ex, who needs to remain your ex. So keep him out of your pants. Keep him out of your bed. Don't let him live in false hope. Don't encourage his false hopes. And definitely fucking him will encourage him in his false hopes. Don't do it. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Sean Patrick Doyle tweets, does the music intro to Fake Dan Savage's Savage Lovecast not sound like a cut song from Avenue Q? I think that at the start of every Lovecast. Actually, our opening song was written by Tim LaFollette of the Popovers. We sadly lost him to ALS more than a decade ago, and thank you for your tweet. It gave us a moment to remember Tim and credit Tim for the terrific opening number he wrote for us. Slander Panic tweets, quote, you don't have to carry on your shoulders the weight of all male terribleness. Thank you, at Fake Dan Savage. Those of us who work to be not terrible need to hear that now and then. You're welcome. And finally, Kate Strafford tweets, I officially have a subscription to the Savage Lovecast now. Why in the hell did I wait so long? Mr. Dan Savage dropped some fire knowledge on the Magnum Savage Lovecast. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Magnum, Kate, and thank you to all of our Magnum subscribers out there. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on a future Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast when you're tweeting about the show. And now your response calls. Hi, Dan. Uh, for the uh, caller in the last podcast uh, who uh, recently befriended a quote-unquote obvious uh, trans man and whose wife was really giving the hard sell on whether or not he is trans, one thing that the caller should also keep in mind is there are a lot of uh, chunks of the LGBT community that are really, really harsh on uh, trans men and straight relationships, you know, and you know, or tra- trans folks in general, you know, in opposite sex relationships. And like a lot, a lot of policing on how trans are you, how gay are you, et cetera. And those people are, you know, basically driving a lot of trans folks, so you know, a lot of queer folks, a lot of NB folks, you know, sort of back into the closet for fear of having their exact expression of their sexuality policed. And it's possible that your friend is, 
you know, you know, a little reluctant to be open and out around, you know, around people that they don't know well. As a result, perhaps, you know, your, your friend has been through some shit and is trying to avoid that in the future. And you just need to back off. Hi, this message is for the vegan caller in episode 681 who wanted your input on veganism and erections. Uh, let me first start by saying I am not one of those red-blooded American men who make a performance out of eating chicken wings and deep-fried steak. I am a 32-year-old red-blooded woman who has learned through 10 years of health experimentation and medical studies that the absolute healthiest thing to eat is, in fact, meat and animal fats. The documentaries that this gentleman referenced have been completely debunked and discredited as blatant propaganda. Humans evolved for a million years eating primarily animals and animal fats. If you were to reason today that the best way we could thrive is on these extremely nutrient-dense and complete foods without the processed crap we usually include, of course. Vegans and vegetarians are not saving the planet by any means. To the contrary, monocropping is a huge problem that's being ignored. Regenerative agriculture and utilizing animals with the land is the only way to restore our land if we want to actually reverse climate change. Also, in reference to the call, animal products for testosterone and hormone balancing are the most promising way to get your erections back. Skip the crap grains and sugar regardless of whether you're vegan or not. There are absolutely, obviously, two very opposing sides to the climate and health debate, and I definitely urge you and your listeners to research the opposing side of things so we can work together to save the planet and our health. Not every meat eater is environmentally irresponsible. Sometimes it's the opposite. Hey, what's up, Dan? I was just listening to episode 681, and the woman whose husband is uh, getting involved with threesome. Yeah, vasectomies are awesome. Great advice. And if you know you definitely don't want kids, it's fucking money in the bank. I have had a vasectomy for about seven years now, and me and my wife have awesome, amazing sex, and vasectomies roll. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number. If you want to give us a call, leave a question or a comment, or you can use the voice memo app on your phone, higher quality, better listening, and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. And you can give the gift of the Magnum Savage Lovecast, twice as much Lovecast, no ads, more guests, by going to savagelovecast.com and clicking on gift and the opening weekends of the 15th annual hump film festival wrap up this week in seattle portland san francisco and olympia before the 15th annual hump goes out on tour all over the country next year if you're in seattle portland san francisco or olympia and you can get to a theater you get to vote and help give out the big cash prizes in the hump film fest awards go to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets and of course go to humpfilmfest.com next year to find out when the 15th annual hump film fest coming to a city near you. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Emma Gray on Twitter at Emma Lady Rose. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.